is leaning on the everlasting arms. Uh, it's not one that I cry through uh, like it as well, but um, it is one that I enjoy singing. It was written by Elisha Albright Hoffman, who was a Presbyterian minister in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, and one of my favorite versions, um, and I put it out there for you, I don't know who you listened to it, but one of my favorite versions is by a woman by the name of Iris Dement. Um, she was born in Paragould, Arkansas, and is a Grammy-nominated folk artist. Uh, and I found out this week that she is actually the Iris, the Goo Goo Dolls named their song after. Just a little tidbit for you, um, you music aficionados. Um, and even though it doesn't contain my favorite verse, which is verse 3, it's my favorite version because of how it's used in the 2010 remake of the film True Grit. If you haven't seen the movie... Um, spoiler alert, um, it's a story that displays the tension between justice and judgment on one hand and grace and mercy on the other. Uh, and this is all set up in the very first paragraph of the movie when uh, Maddie Ross, who's the narrator and main character, um, determines to, who has determined to avenge her father's death, says the following. She says, you must pay for everything in this world one way or another. There is nothing free but the grace of God. Um, Maddie, of course, hires an old lawman by the name of Rooster Cogburn to help her uh, avenge her father's death and to find her father's killer. And when all's said and done, her desire for justice overtakes her to the point that it turns into this excessive hunger for vengeance. And by the time it's all over with, her, um, her, father is, or her father's killer is dead, but so are countless numbers of others. And she, it also leads her to falling into a poisonous pit of, sna- or a sna- a pit of poisonous snakes, and she's bit on the hand. Um, Rooster's effort to save her um, is really a story of, uh, or a vision of historic, or heroic, not historic, heroic compassion. Because not only does he go down into the pit himself to bring her out, uh, when his horse falls over um, in exhaustion, he picks Maddie up to save. And at the conclusion of the movie, several years have passed, and we see that while her life was saved, Maddie loses her arm. And we're left with this contrast between Maddie, who actually has always only had one arm, the arm of justice, and Rooster has always had, though we haven't always seen it, Rooster's always had two arms, one of justice and judgment, and one of mercy and grace, both of which Maddie has leaned on throughout the entire movie. In our text tonight, God, through the prophet Micah, promises us that we have nothing to fear, we have nothing to dread. We are safe and secure from all alarm. We will see that we shall, in fact, dwell secure. 
And we will dwell secure in the everlasting, one, in the everlasting arms of the one who has both an arm of, ju- of, of justness and of justice and one of mercy. He is both a righteous judge and a gracious Savior. Let's pray before we continue. Father, we, we ask that by your Spirit that you would grant us power to the preaching, um, that you would grant power to the preaching of your Word. Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. Awaken our attention and open our sorrows and convict us and challenge us, and then please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us, as always, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Would you grant me, who is weak and who needs strength for this task, would you grant me grace, would you fill me with your Spirit, that I might be a pure channel of your grace and do something good for you this evening? Grant me the ability to communicate with fluency and fervency and grace. And I pray that it would be for the benefit of your church and for the sake of Christ. And it's in His name I pray. Amen. Well, Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. And so the context is somewhat the same as it was last week. Right? The, the kingdom of Israel has been divided. The kingdom that was united under David has been divided into two kingdoms under Solomon, the north kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And there's been some time that's passed between uh, the prophecy uh, that Isaiah made and and where we are tonight. Um, So Assyria is now, uh, the things that Isaiah prophesied has taken place in Assyria. Assyria is now in control of Israel, but they're not done. It is not done. The country is not done. The nation is not done. Uh, It is moving in. Um, to, to invade Jerusalem. Um, and is actually, is actually facing um, attack when Micah prophesies. But his message is much like Isaiah. His message is both one of judgment and grace. His message is one of judgment and salvation. He speaks of judgment that is impending due to uh, their personal and corporate sin of idolatry. Uh, It's coming upon them due to the corruption and failure of both governmental and uh, religious leadership. It's, It's coming because of violence and oppression and a lack of justice. And a holy and righteous and just God would not, because He could not, overlook the sin that they had been a part of or had been uh, been living in. He he could not refrain from bringing judgment upon it, upon the the sin that they deserved. But Micah also has good news. He's got good news of grace and salvation, and that's going to be our focus. I want us to see three things tonight from our passage that I just read. We want to see a town predicted, a Savior promised, and a plan presented. A town predicted, a Savior promised, and a plan presented. Let's look first at the town predicted. Look at verse 1. 
Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Micah, as most prophets, was straight into the point. He wasn't going to mince words. The Assyrians were going to strike at the very heart of the southern kingdom, there in Jerusalem. It was the epicenter of Jewish life. In many ways, it, um, the nation's identity was tied up within the city. Politically, it was the seat of the Davidic throne, and religiously, of course, the temple was there. And to make matters worse, the Assyrians weren't just going to come in and ransack the city. Um, the Assyrians were going to mock and belittle the king. The picture he paints is, is, simply, is not simply one of defeat. It's one of humiliation and hopelessness. But in verse 2, Micah offers hope in the midst of that. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be counted among the, the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. The hope, of course, was a, for a ruler, a new ruler to, to come, because as we know, victory over our enemies is not something we're able to secure on our own. It's something that God has to secure on our behalf. And he was going to provide that. But before we talk about that particular ruler, we need to talk about from where the ruler was going to come because there's both in, Bethlehem was both insignificant and significant at the same time. It was insignificant because it wasn't a city of any type of uh, economic or political or military distinction. It wasn't even a suburb of a larger, more prominent metropolitan area. It was a rural, obscure town, or an obscure rural town about six miles south of Jerusalem, and it was so, so obscure that it didn't make the top 100 cities that would be a part of the clans of Judah. It was more of a township, today would probably only have a post office, and probably wasn't on any map. Google or otherwise, and Siri definitely wouldn't be able to find it. It was so insignificant that Micah had to describe the county as well as the city. He had to differentiate between Bethlehem's, the one that he's referring to in Ephrathah, and then the one that was in Zebulun. But while it was insignificant, it was also very significant because there is a lot of history that, that was a part of the town. It had a rich history. We know that the setting of the story of Ruth and Boaz took place in Bethlehem. And it was also the birthplace of David, of King David. It was his hometown. And now, Micah said it would produce, said it would produce an even greater king than David, an even greater David that would be the hope of Israel. And that brings us to the ruler, a Savior promised. Verse 2 again, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. The coming ruler would be a ruler that um, had done what no other ruler had done before. It was going to be, he was going to be better than any king or any judge before him. And notice it would be a ruler who would come for God. In other words, the ruler would come first and foremost to fulfill the will of God and to bring Him glory. But that ruler wouldn't be just any ruler. 
He would be a ruler whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And this, of course, has got a couple of possible meanings. Uh, I believe both are not only appropriate and purposeful. In other words, I, I believe they both fit. First, the language when paired with the language of, O Bethlehem, from you shall come, speaks of the ancestral line from which the ruler would come, which is the line of David. In other words, the ruler was going to be human. He would be the one who would fulfill God's promise of, of uh, promise to David of someone from his royal line and, and his royal house fulfilling, thus fulfilling God's promise to him. But it wasn't just going to fulfill God's promise to David, it was also going to fulfill God's promise to Jacob, and it was going to fulfill God's promise to Abraham, and it was going to fulfill God's promise to Adam. He was going to be the seed. And second, the language also speaks of someone much older than that, and much older than that promise to Adam. It speaks of someone who, also it speaks of someone who was not only human, but also divine. Because in the Scripture, of old and ancient days is used in reference to God's eternality. So, I believe Micah is saying exactly what Isaiah said in his prophecy that we looked at last week. This natural descendant of David would also be a supernatural, eternal, only begotten Son, one with the Father and the Spirit, before all ages, full of grace and truth. He would be a transcendent wonder because he would be he would be God incarnate who took on flesh to dwell among his people. The bottom line is this ruler, this God man, would be the promised Messiah through whom God would dwell with his people. Now, I want us to skip verse 3 and look at verse 4. Micah says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Again, unlike the leaders of the past and and the present, this promised one was going to stand and shepherd in strength. He was going to lead and guide and protect the sheep, the people of God. He would bring an end to the corruption. He would bring an, an end to the oppression. He would bring an end to the injustice, and he was going to rule with righteousness and justice on one hand but with mercy and grace on the other. And the result, Micah says, and they, God's people, shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That word that's translated dwell secure actually means to sit. So God's people are Micah says, God's people are going to sit eternally secure because the ruler is going to be standing alert and watching over them and protecting them, ministering to them attentively and caring for them. Subjective says rule, as again, as we saw last week, he would not only give a subjective sense of peace that they would feel or experience, he was in fact going to bring peace about. As that valiant warrior we saw last week, he would be victorious and he would bring peace by triumphing over the enemies of the flock of God. 
He would come and vanquish Satan and break the bondage of sin and its curse. Now let's jump back to verse 3 that we skipped and look at the plan presented. Verse 3 says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Here Micah uses the same language to describe the plan that he did back in chapter 4, verse 10, when he used the metaphor of a pregnant woman to describe the pain and anguish of exile. You see, the ruler wasn't going to come immediately. Certain things had to happen first. And Judah, like Israel, would be conquered and the people would be taken into exile. And even though God relented and pulled Assyria, didn't really pull Assyria back, He just took care of Assyria, and they did not invade in 701, it would be 115 years before Jerusalem would be overtaken by Babylon. Jerusalem and the southern kingdom would experience His judgment. We need to remember, a holy, righteous, and just God cannot refrain from bringing judgment sin deserves. It's against His own character and against the character of sin. But Micah, Micah says salvation would come from judgment, but also through judgment. The writhing, sorry ladies who are expecting, the writhing And the groaning of captivity and exile, to use his words from chapter 4, would continue until the appointed time when the ruler would be born. And when he was, there would be a remnant who had never given up. That remnant who had always trusted in and rested in the promise of the child of a Savior who would be born for them. Their circumstances would not keep them from looking to in hope for looking to and looking to the one, having hope, looking to the one who would deliver them not simply from their geopolitical plight, but from the tyranny of Satan and sin. It would actually cause them to long for that day. After the Babo that the ruler would not appear for hundreds of years after the Babylonians had come and gone and Israel was then occupied by Rome. When the fullness of time had come, in Bethlehem, a child, a ruler, a Savior was born. And that child, that ruler, that Savior was Jesus Christ the Lord. And He continues to gather a remnant of His people from every tribe, nation, and tongue of those who look to Him in faith, trusting the promise that His salvation is for them. Thanks be to God. Now, there are five takeaways. I wanted to save them all for the end. And the first is simply this, brothers and sisters and children in particular, I want you to think about this. Very simply, our faith is grounded in historical fact. 
Christ was born, He was a real person. His birth was foretold hundreds of years beforehand, but He was in fact born in Bethlehem, which was a real place. And it was something that the Jews believed and anticipated. The Magi and Herod themselves verify that in the passage we read from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2. He had a family. He lived in Nazareth. He traveled throughout Palestine, as we saw in our study of Luke. He was murdered. He was buried. And he rose again from the, rose again from the dead, all taking place in the city of Jerusalem. This isn't pie-in-the-sky thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It's a historical fact. And that means we cling, children, again, hear me, we cling to a Savior who was a person in history, not simply a character in a story. And you need to hold on to that with all your might. Secondly, Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus are perfect examples to all of us that God's way of ministry and salvation is through the seemingly insignificant that He ordains and uses to bring Himself glory. The world seems to always look for the right person, living in the right place, with the right plan and right strategy to solve all of our problems. The more glamorous and the more charismatic, the better. But that should not be said of us. Richard Phillips puts it this way, God does not achieve His works through the fleshly appeal of charismatic personalities, but through the hands and lips of humble believers committed to doing His will. The greatest example is Jesus Christ who was born not into prominence but obscurity. Not into wealth, but poverty. Not into power, but weakness. Brothers and sisters, we we may not have the power. We may not have the prominence. We may not not, definitely don't have uh, the positions and prestige upon which so many place their hope. But remember, it is a false hope. Our hope is not in those things. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our strength. Our hope is not in our strategies. Our hope is not in our methods. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Christ, and God will take the ordinary and the obscure, and the insignificant, like human beings who live in flyover states. He will use things like preaching. He will use ordinary things like water, and bread, and wine, and use them to bring about His ends for His glory. Thirdly, we have been saved from judgment. We we are looking to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. 
We are trusting in the divine exchange of our record of sin for His perfect record of righteousness. We've been justified because our sin was imputed to Him and His righteousness was imputed to us. We're resting in Christ for the verdict of not guilty because He took our guilt upon Himself. We are looking to Him for our redemption because He has paid the debt that we owed for our sin. He drank the cup of wrath on our behalf and underwent the judgment of God that we deserved. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We're not awaiting judgment. We're, well, we've been saved from judgment. We're awaiting the full and final consummation of our salvation that is already ours in Him. And fourthly, we will be saved through judgment. We're exiles in this world. And we're awaiting our full and final redemption. We're awaiting our final residence. We're awaiting a city not made with hands. A city in which there will be no more sin and no more pain. No more sickness and no more death, no more mourning, no more crying. But until then, we live in exile, and that life of exile is in the midst of evil and trials and tribulations and pain and illness and disease and death. It includes sadness, it includes grief all of which remind us that we live in a fallen world that is under judgment. And it reminds us this is not our home. But rather than doubt, rather than give up and forsake our, uh, forsake our faith, we're called to persevere. And the question is, how do we do that? In the, midst of, in the midst of exile. And the answer is, rather than question the goodness and omnipotence of God because of the fallenness of our world, because of the sin and evil of our world, it should cause us to acknowledge that we too are in fact fallen. We're not immune from that fallenness. We we have in fact fallen. We, we have sinned to deal with. Our, our, our old natures have been crucified with Christ. But sin remains. The vestiges or vestige of sin remains. We're free from our bondage, but we're still in this battle between flesh and spirit, constantly being waged. And we should not only acknowledge our sin, but learn to grow in our hatred for it. We should lament sin in general, but we should seek to repent and mortify our sin specifically. Our sin is an offense to a holy God, and it's, it is that for which Christ died. And therefore, our sin should not be ignored. Our sin should not be nuanced. It shouldn't be trifled with. 
It shouldn't be entertained. It shouldn't be celebrated. And it shouldn't be glorified. We should turn from it and seek to kill it. And it is through that daily repentance and mortification of our sin and our clinging to Christ that we will persevere and be saved. Which brings us to the fifth and final takeaway. Brothers and sisters, we will dwell secure. He who has promised is faithful. And we will persevere because He will preserve us. We are sheep, and that is rife with difficulty. But we have a great shepherd, and he knows each of our names. He knows us, and we enjoy intimate fellowship with him. He's always with us. He leads us, and he guides us to that which is full and final in terms of, in terms of quenching our thirst and satisfying our hunger. He will provide that which is necessary for our contentment. He will carry our burdens. He will forgive our sin. He will mend our broken hearts. And He will restore our souls no matter how downcast we may be. He will lead us down right paths. He will sanctify us. He will draw us close. He will protect us. He will defend us. He will come after us if we stray. He will not lose one of us, and He will not let anything snatch us out of His hand. He will execute justice on our behalf. He will also discipline us if needed. He will not just adequately supply our needs, He will abundantly supply our needs according to His riches and glory. He will lead us. He will come alongside us. He will pursue us, and he who, is, he who was seated at the right hand of God, having made purification for sins, now stands, interceding for you and for me in strength. And because He stands, we can dwell secure. He stands to shepherd us. We not only lean on His everlasting arms of righteousness and justice and judgment and of grace and mercy, we're enveloped by them. And we sit secure at His feet, resting in safety. What have we to dread? What have we to fear? leaning on the everlasting arms. We have blessed peace with our Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. We're leaning safe and secure from all alarm. We're leaning on His everlasting arms. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.